Welcome to the Connected Insurance Podcast, presented by Agency Revolution. Listen to interviews with the most influential people in the insurance industry. Learn the most important strategies, tactics, trends, and challenges facing today's independent insurance agents and brokers. New episodes every Wednesday. Visit agencyrevolution.com and click media to explore the Connected Insurance family of resources for insurance agents and brokers. Subscribe today and get updates delivered right to your inbox. And now, without further delay, the Connected Insurance Podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Michael Jans, co-founder of Agency Revolution. Today, delighted to be your podcast host, broadcasting from the Casita. And I want to welcome you to this episode of the Connected Insurance Podcast, presented by Agency Revolution creators of Fuse, the insurance marketing software that will skyrocket your retention in your agency, boost policies per customer in your agency, and do what every agency principal wants. Make your clients love your agency, love having a relationship with you. Without you having to hire more staff, programmers, technologists, if you haven't done it lately, visit agencyrevolution.com, request a demo, take a look at the software, and then tell me what you think about it, because you'll see why agents and brokers are raving about it, but I think you'll also discover why this is the gold standard of communication software, marketing automation software in the insurance industry, and you can see, you'll see quickly why this is the software that is scaling so without further ado, I'm going to give you um, a little insight on this conversation. It's a special one. My guest is Dennis Chukasian. You may or may not know his name. If you've been in the industry for a while, you'll recognize this is the man who ran CNA. He was the uh, chair of the board. He was the CEO of CNA Insurance and uh, honestly, uh, one of the smartest people I know. When when Dennis talks, Michael takes notes. I don't really, I don't know many people. I don't know if I know anybody that has a, a more astute, insightful perspective on the long view of insurance, not only in terms of um, how the trends and forces have changed and morphed this industry over the past years, but how those changes and uh, trends are um are moving into the future and how they're uh, shaping the future. So this is a this is a hardcore strategy episode. This this is a masterclass from one of the true masters of insurance strategy. So uh, I th- um, listen to it a couple of times. Uh, I, like I said, when Dennis talks, Michael takes notes. I took a lot of notes on this one, and I always feel like when I'm when I'm done with a conversation with Dennis, I'm a little smarter than I was before. So I think you're going to, I know you're going to enjoy this conversation. A um, couple of really quick announcements. Number one, please connect with me on LinkedIn. So next time you're in front of your computer, just do it. Find Michael Jantz, easy to find. Um, also, if you want to follow me on Twitter and Instagram, Boom. Follow me on Instagram. You can see my, uh, oh, not quite daily pictures of the sunrise, the sunset, and the beautiful, uh, the, the, the hills and the Sonoran Desert, where, where we broadcast uh, our podcast from. Uh, really quick favor. And, uh, and uh, I'm serious about this, if, if you would be so kind. If you've gotten value from our relationship, if you've gotten value from the podcast, from my guests, um, if you'd be kind enough to go to your uh, podcast platform and give us a five-star review, it would mean the world to me. 
Uh, if I haven't earned a five-star review, let me know. You can email me at michael at michaeljans.com, or you can hop on LinkedIn, message me, and tell me what I need to do to get a five-star review from you. Uh, either way, grateful grateful for either one. Um, so um, connect uh, so connect with me, but also follow Agency Revolution. You don't want to miss out on the juicy, groovy, gro groovy stuff that um, – Agency Revolution is, uh, is giving away so freely to uh, the agent industry. And if you haven't been on my site lately, I have now uh, I now have a five-question survey that will deliver to you an answer about where your agency stands in the five levels of the modern insurance agency. So you can see um, in moments, you can see, uh, what level you are on right now, and then I will give you free resources to help you get to the next level quickly and easily. So um, now, uh, um, if you'd be kind enough, lodge those little reminders in your mind and follow through on them uh, when you are able to, hopefully quickly. And now, without further ado, it's, it is a privilege to uh, invite you to listen to this conversation with the former chair and CEO of CNA Insurance, Dennis Chukasian. Dennis, thank you so much for joining us again. How are you? I'm good, Michael. Good to talk to you. Well, uh, good to talk to you. And and uh, as I know, I've mentioned to you before, every time I have a conversation with you, I learn something. Um, and, and in fact, uh, since the last podcast we did, which was a while ago, I know we've had a conversation or two since then, but... In that, in that last podcast, you shared some, um, oh, uh, broad but, but significant economic information to me about the industry that's been part of my training ever since. So, and, I, and I give you citation for that. So thank you very much for that. Well, thank you. Well, and, and that's part of why I come back to the well, Dennis. I, they're, they're, you know, I, I, have, I have a terrific um, portfolio of guests, but... <laughs> Not many with your perspective, um, as you've got the capacity to look at the industry from 30,000 feet and um, make discernments and assessments that are uh, uh, profound and matter um, and often get missed by people who are, um, you know, sort of in the weeds working day to day. So um, I'm anxious to dive into this conversation with you. So thanks. I suppose, Dennis, if you'd be kind enough, not everybody knows you. Um, they should. But for those who don't, perhaps, you know, give us a, a short thumbnail of what you've done and, and what you're up to right now. Um, sure. I basically have had three careers. I was in management consulting uh, after my education with Deloitte for about eight years doing a combination of financial and systems consulting work. And then I went with CNA, the insurance company, of course, and CNA insurance, I was, uh, I was there for, uh, for uh, 27 years and I was um, CFO and CIO. I ran systems and finance for about 15 years. And then I was uh, president chairman and CEO for nine years and then serving the board for about three years after I retired. And then I'm now in career three, where I'm serving on a bunch of boards, and I'm also uh, teaching. I teach uh, two courses at the University of Chicago in the business school on corporate governance, and then I teach at uh, two universities in China. Although um, this year, of course, I have not been to China because uh -huh. of COVID, but normally right. I'd be in China two or three times a year teaching the same governance ideas. Okay. 
So, uh, big picture. I like to start there anywhere uh, with most of my guests, but in this case, it's the obvious thing to do. Uh, As I recall, uh, you and I had a conversation during the pandemic, but it wasn't a recorded conversation. And and as I recall, our our, uh, first podcast was pre-pandemic. Well, uh, and to some extent, and you gave some, oh, some uh, uh, sobering but still optimistic uh, insight on the direction of the industry, some some things that people, agents really need to pay attention to. And I think we'll circle back to that. But let's let's um, let's be real about where we are right now, the fact that we are deep within a global pandemic. Let's start with that one. Uh, I'm, I'm curious. Um, if if you feel that uh, is it affecting the industry the way that you thought it was, and um, when when you look to the next few months, what's your sense of how things are going to go? Sure, yeah, and it's the question I think, uh, Michael, of course, that everybody is asking. And so maybe to go back a year, uh, at the end of last year, I don't think I, I certainly had no inkling that there was going to be this type of a development. And when you looked at all of the risk management activities that on the boards that I'm on that we were doing and thinking about what could possibly happen, you know, black swan events as they're called, you know, the Mm -hmm. unthinkable, nobody thought that we would have a shutdown of the economy. I mean, just nobody thought that this was going to happen. So it's an unprecedented time, and we all know. Can, can I ask you to? I'm going to ask you to pause for just a moment, um, because presumably in those meetings, right, high level meeting, board level uh, strategy session, one of the things you use the term, one of the things that you're probably asking is what black swan might swim into our pond. That that's a that's a standard question, right? Especially for those of us in the risk management business, and. And this one, this one was just like, no, nobody was thinking this is a possibility. It's just too rare. Uh, talking about black swans and that type of thing, again, a lot of times people talk about a hundred year storm and what's the impact of a hundred year storm. And, and the common perception is that it's a storm that occurs once every hundred years, but really that's not it. There's a difference between frequency and severity. Mm-hmm. And the hundred year storm measurement is how severe a storm might be. So a hundred year storm is the worst that it will be over a hundred year period of time. You'll get a storm of a specific severity, but you could get that storm five every five years, every 10 years, uh-huh. you could get the storm right. frequently, but it's a severity measure. So now when we turn then to this whole COVID issue, again, look at frequency and severity. Well, the severity is off the charts high and ordinarily, when you look at a black swan event, if it's off the charts high, if there's even a small probability that it will occur, you do something to plan for it. But in this case, the idea of a pandemic, which is on most people's uh, charts as a potential Mm -hmm. risk, but it was viewed to have a frequency that was so low that it was just not deemed to be something that might occur. And so what we had is a huge severity issue to deal with and an event that nobody expected to happen at all. So it's the frequency and severity issue. Now, when you mm-hmm. look at it, what's really happened with it, though, is that it's um, very much like the story about the three blind men grabbing an elephant, depending on where they grab, they give you a different description right. of the elephant. 
And in this particular case, depending on the industry that you're in, and depending on what you're looking at, you may have just catastrophic results, or you may actually have improving conditions. So as an example, those things which are oriented toward like medical supplies, they're going gangbusters and you know, huge uh, gains in sales. They're selling masks, uh, medical mm -hmm. supplies, all of that. Those companies right. are doing well. Food stores are doing well. At uh, home delivery. At right? home delivery is doing well. Uh, takeout restaurants are doing fine. Video <laughs> conferencing isn't doing too bad. <laughs> Zoom, you can see from the share price of Zoom, yeah. just how the, the whole pandemic made it into a major company. Without that, Zoom wouldn't be anywhere near where it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then on the flip side of that, there are businesses who are devastated by it. Now, in the auto business, one of the elements of it in the automobile business, the frequency of automobile accidents is way down. Depending on how you want to measure, it's more or less half of what it was before the pandemic. <clears throat> because the frequency of accidents are down, death rate is down as well. Now, interestingly, by the way, one additional thing from the preliminary statistics, it looks like the frequency is down more than the death rate. So one might speculate that perhaps with fewer cars in the road, people are driving more aggressively and maybe that's leading to more fatalities. But uh -huh. the initial possible. numbers on frequency were a lot lower drop than there were in the uh, decline in fatalities. Now, when you look at that though, so if you're in the claim servicing business, what do you do? Well, first, from the point of view of the carriers, many carriers said, well, as a result of this, we're gonna give a refund. So they've given a dividend or reduced the premium. They've done something like that because they knew they collected premium where driving conditions, you know, where driving was cut in half, so they weren't gonna have the accidents. And so they were making so much money that they thought for uh, the benefit of their uh, policyholders, they would give them refunds, which mm -hmm. most of one form or another, and certainly reduce rates. Now, what happens when the pandemic ends? Well, it's going to go right back up, you would think. Then that's, but that's auto insurance. Now, when you get into other elements of it, such as you know, homeowners, well, people are still buying homes. Uh, there have been some very substantial shifts in uh, housing prices and values. Housing in the major cities like New York and San Francisco, housing prices have plummeted. Rental rates have dropped drastically from where they were because people just don't want to be in that central city anymore. Uh -huh. in the same way. Right. Now, a lot of people are sequestering in a place that's kind of a lower key, comfort, comfortable place, lower cost of living. They don't, there's no reason to be there. Mm -hmm. So it's having an impact in that way. So for the insurance industry, Again, it's, it's quite mixed as to what the impact is. Now, as a general statement though, the insurance companies are doing fine. Your insurance companies are, um, you know, they're giving refunds in personal lines, as I mentioned. On the commercial line side, they're more or less where they were and you know, they're making money. So it's not really, you know, without getting too granular on a specific line of business, the insurance carriers are generally doing okay. They're profitable and they're stable they're not having to make big cutbacks. Now, the service side of it is a different story. For those people who are servicing automobile claims, they're cut in half. You know, and so they've had to take drastic yeah. feedback, uh -huh. or uh, I'm sorry, drastic um, cutbacks in their staffing to accommodate that. But those people who are doing software, if anything, there's more of a demand for software now than there was in the past. So companies are starting to consider how can they make everything 
more efficient and to work within this concept of work at home where you don't uh, have to be in the office as much. Well, you need more software. You need things that really do that well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a big push for artificial intelligence. So all of that stuff is starting to happen. And that's really what, you know, that's, that's really what's driving it, I believe. So, um, so, so what trends do you think the pandemic is accelerating? How do you think the world will be different, particularly the insurance world? How do you think it'll be different afterwards than it was before? Even if it was moving in the same direction, how do you think it'll be different? Yeah, well, first, I think when we return to normal, whatever that may be, it will, <laughs> yeah, be, <right>. a, <laughs> it will be a new normal and it won't look anything like the old normal. And I can tell you from the boards that I serve on and the companies that I work with that virtually all of them have said they're going to reduce the amount of in-office time they spend because the work at home is working. It's working fine. Yeah. So because it's working fine, they just don't need that big office space that they once had. And it's now going to push people into dramatically lower footprints in the office and then doing things which are more oriented toward motelling. So you're not going to have this office with walls and all that anymore. It's going to probably be an awful lot of open space things. Mm -hmm. And you're going to bring people in when you need to. But an awful lot of the work at home is, uh, is where things are going. And I think the industry's support staff will be there. And they're finding that that works. Now, that means, as I mentioned earlier, that it's going to mean different software. They're going to have to have software that actually tracks what's going on, usage of the computer, all of those things, where they know that, in fact, the person's actually working and getting the work accomplished. But a lot of the work in the insurance industry really does lend itself to uh, monitoring and work from home. Mm -hmm. Now, the other element of that is that companies still need the socialization element of what you do when you're in person. So there will probably be things developed where what you will do is you will uh, come into the office for meetings from time to time or some social events so that you keep that personal contact. But then an awful lot of the work is from home. And of course, that has caused a lot of challenges with regard to daycare for children and all those other issues as to how you do that, particularly if the children aren't back in school quickly. And a lot of the schools now, which went back initially uh, in the fall, and a number of schools are now pulling back and saying they're going back to virtual. And so right. that's going to be a bit of a challenge as well as we take the, uh, the next step as we unfold this. So what should an insurance carrier do and what should an insurance agent do? Well, from a carrier's perspective, I think they've got the plans in place for expansion, the types of products they're selling, I think are all very suitable. They probably need to spend quite a bit of time thinking about what type of exclusions they have or what coverage they have for things such as the pandemic. Because the pandemic will work its way through the court system as to where whether some of these things, such as business interruption claims, are covered or not. And so that will work its way through the court system. And as always happens, when there is a situation of that nature, it changes the nature of the insurance policy form. Can so you make a best guess about what you think will happen in regards to um, virus or <clears throat> pandemic exclusions? Well, I think that there will probably emerge riders <clears throat> of one form or another that get into this whole issue of the cost of business interruption. But the challenge with it is it's pretty binary. You know, when you shut down, it's huge losses because basically, you know, once the company has to shut down, they're out of business. 
So the losses are so big that they'll have to layer in a lot of reinsurance in order to be able to cover that loss. So more than likely, there'll be some element of that which will be self-insured, and there'll be some time periods, some holding periods where you'll be out with the assumption that the government can't let everything be shut down permanently. Yeah. But I believe that there will definitely be changes in policy wording that'll cover it, and there'll probably be riders where you can buy coverage for the pandemic. But it's going to be expensive. It'll be just like cyber coverage when it first came out. It was really expensive and didn't cover much. And now it actually covers quite a bit and the prices have come down. Got it. Okay. Um, so, it, you know, so, yeah. I was going to just add so, from an agent's point of view, what yeah. should an agent do? Well, as has been the case over the last you know, 30 or 40 years, as the focus of the industry has shifted more and more toward customer control, the agent has to redouble their efforts at marketing. It's a very simple and obvious thing that, you know, who wouldn't know that, of course? And so, but the agent needs to focus on how they develop contracts if they're a commercial insurer with their producers who have the ability to pick up a book if they, you know, depending on whether they have ownership in the book or not, and move to another agent. They've got to be very mm -hmm. careful about how they maintain and compensate the people who work for them because a lot of things are going to be changing and, and people will be able to move. So for those reasons, that's got to be a key focus. And then the shift to uh, the internet and the movement for um, internet marketing, purchasing of leads and selling internet uh, policies is now more and more important. The personal lines market has largely shifted away from the independent agent on a direct sales basis. And it's really only the high net worth or the, the more complicated policies that are being sold by the, uh, the average independent agent. All right. well, so let, let, let's, let's spend a moment on that because I, I have a feeling some ears are perking up when we talk about that. So uh, we know that over the last few decades, let's say two, two and a half decades, a substantial amount of I guess what we would call, um, oh, sort of the common everyday personal lines business has shifted away from the agency market, right? Yes. Into the, what we would call the direct channel. Yes. And we may see to, to the extent we can call it one, um, if there is a digital channel or an emerging digital channel, they're also probably really well suited to that, um, well, what we call, what we could call the down market of personal lines. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and 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 you're probably more aware of the the numbers than I am, but it's a it was really fairly substantial. Yes, that shift. Yeah, and and I can actually put some numbers around that, which I think your audience might be interested in. If you go back to the '60s, you know, this is 50 years ago. If you go back into the '60s, the independent agents had about half of the personal lines market. And then Allstate and State Farm combined had perhaps 35 to 40% of the market. And then there was 10% in you know, 10 or 15% in some direct and some other ways of selling. But fundamentally, it was really there. In the agent had 50%. Today, mm -hmm. an agent has less than 10% of the personal lines market. And actually, interestingly, Geico is now a larger seller of automobile insurance than Allstate. It's uh, State Farm is still number one, but Geico is now number two. Yeah, and, uh, uh, you know, with the growth that has taken place in the shift to online. 
No. And, 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 and my most recent podcast guest uh, represented, uh, kind of represented the nationwide universe wherein they released all 1,800 of their captive agents. That's right, yeah. Nationwide, their agents were captive, as you mentioned, and Nationwide actually had a computer system that they gave to their agents as well. And the agents were on the Nationwide system and they sold just Nationwide products. Right. And they've now said to them, we can no longer support that system. So we're converting that system into a system of independent agents who will still do the predominant amount of their business with Nationwide, but they have to now provide uh, over time their own computer system. They have to provide their own services and support. Okay, can, I, can I ask your best guess, as, as somebody who's spent many years in the strategy sessions and boardrooms of, uh, of national insurance companies, can, can I ask your best guess of what you think the, what, what the um, dynamic, what the driver was behind that decision? Because obviously it's a really big decision and it's not one that you can, it's, it's not, it, these aren't cows you can call back. That's right. Yeah. And I, I think what, what's driving it, of course, is the cost of the, uh, of the production of an automobile policy. And let's focus on, because it's largely auto and homeowners where that's happening. And what they found was, with the loss of business, the way it was occurring, they just couldn't afford the support costs for that agency system. They're paying for their computer system. <clears throat> the, uh, uh, the commission levels are, are high and mm -hmm. they couldn't compete against the Geico Progressive uh, USAA. And that's what's driving it. Now, interestingly, if you look at what the average costs are, and I'll give you some just real rough numbers, but they're in the ballpark. So the typical independent agency company who is uh, providing the product through the typical independent agent would have a total expense load of around 30%. And that would be about 20%, you know, 18 to 20% would be acquisition. Of that, it would be including contingencies, 16%, 17% in commissions, including uh -huh. contingencies. And then another 3% in taxes, in premium taxes. And then yeah. okay. you'd have 10% in processing costs. That'd be the typical norm. Now, Allstate and State Farm, because of their size and their captive distribution systems, their all included costs would range between 19 and 22%, quite a bit less than the third. Well, that, yeah, okay. That's pretty significant. That's okay. Significant. And then when you get down to a, a Geico and some of the direct writers, they're closer to 15 and I, last time I looked, I think USA is even lower than that, around 13 or so. So when you get a 13 to 15% rate of expense compared to 30% rate of expense, you can see why over time, the product uh, price, which reflects that, has driven the, the consumer who is cost sensitive mm -hmm. and the standard consumer is, the high net worth consumer is not. They're after service. Right. But for the consumer who has you know one or two cars and is cost sensitive on their uh, on the price of their insurance they shop and if they can pick up another you know save three four hundred dollars or whatever they're going to do that and that's something they can do by shopping around and that's oftentimes the reason why they will shift from year to year from one carrier to another which also creates problems for the carrier because what right. they want is retention of the business they don't like shifting because there's a high cost to them from the shift and also, it makes it harder to underwrite the book because 
the risk that you have is the risk that you know the best and you know what actually has happened with that risk. And that's much better than new business you write. New business underwriting ratio, loss ratios are always a lot worse than the renewal right. ratio. So for all of those reasons, that's, that's not great. So, but that's what's driving it. What's driving it is that big uh, shift in the cost difference. So, so let me ask you, um, I want to circle on this one for a moment, Dennis, because it, it strikes me as so important to the strategic decisions that an agency owner has to make. I think we can recognize, um, and I know my listeners know my position on this, that that selling on price just has a lot of arguments against it. Selling on price when um, uh, major competitive channels are cheaper to operate really compounds that problem. Um, but here's here's what I want to circle on. We can recognize that there is a high net worth demographic that is not well suited to the um, direct channel. Uh, they are um, much less interested in whether or not they're saving a few hundred bucks, much more interested in what we might call the values of peace of mind and knowing that they're actually properly protected. Now, I want to, so here's, here's the question I want to ask. Setting aside the high net worth, however that's defined, and and I, I suppose there are fuzzy definitions on what that means. Do you perceive a segment of the marketplace that could conceivably they could buy from Geico or they could buy from um, you know Progressive Direct, but they they still have another um, uh, another value driver. Uh, you know, maybe yes, they've got the two or three cars, but but they've got some assets that they care uh, enough about that getting the cheapest is less important than knowing that hey, I, I got a guy, I got a team, I got people. Uh, you know, I'm. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm a person, part of a tribe. And I got, I know that these guys down on main street, or I know that this company that specializes in my niche or what have you, that, uh, you know, that there's peace of mind that comes from that kind of more personal, slightly more expensive relationship. Do, do, do you, do you perceive that there, that in this big demographic of, of us drivers and homeowners, that th there's still a slice of the pie that is, um, you know, may, maybe not, maybe we wouldn't qualify him as, you know, this is the average chub guy, but they're, uh, but they still are uh, motivated by relationship a little bit more than, hey, I want a quick quote and I want it the cheapest one possible. Yeah, that's a first, a very good question. And I think what we're all aware of, of course, is that everybody is aware of the shifting nature of the generations and particularly with millennials and so as you get into the younger people now that are emerging now just getting their first cars you know they're they're buying yeah. their auto insurance they have a very different view about that kind of stability of relationship and in from what i've seen they're way more focused on price and the relationship doesn't mean too much to them and it's not like they say okay i'm you know know this insurance agent from my school or my uh, club that I belong to, or from uh, you know, from some other personal relationship or my, uh, my my religious affiliation, and where you used to buy in that way for your personal insurance, that's really going by the the wayside, and now it's really very focused on price. Now, if you look at the amount 
a business that's produced by the independent agency system today, again, it's less than 10% of the total. And of that, the vast majority of that is people with complicated policy situations. And so people, of course, like Chubb with their masterpiece are very well suited to that. High claim service, uh, they, uh, you know, a lot less hassle in getting something processed from somebody that produces that type of claim service, of course. Mm -hmm. and they don't attempt to be very as, as tough, perhaps, on settlements as some carriers might. So for all of those reasons, they, uh, they do well. And then and they have, they have a significant book of business, and they will do well at that book. Then you have other uh, newer emerging companies that are coming to that same market, like Pure Insurance is a good example. And Pure is following a similar kind of a strategy, and they can handle complicated things, such as somebody with multiple car, collect, you know, car collection or <laughs> fine arts or things of that nature. And they can put it together and package it in a way where they're actually able to, again, provide that high level of service. So there will always be a market for that. And it's maybe you know, it's five to 10% of the market in that range. Mm -hmm. But the number of millennials who are gonna just have like one car, uh, maybe a homeowner's policy, or maybe even a renter's policy, they just don't, that relationship doesn't mean to them. They're not expecting to have a claim. They just buy from the lowest uh, source they can. And they're also at an earlier point in their career where the money means more to them. So, uh, you know, I think the the shift to, to younger people is a challenge. I just don't think they're that it. many. Oh, okay, okay. And, and, and they have experience, years of experience and comfort um, managing um, their personal financial services online. Right, exactly because right. The banking industry is 10 years ahead of the insurance industry in terms of uh, uh, digital transformation. So they're used to that. That's right, okay. yeah. And, okay. and even with that, but, you know, in, in fact, you raised an interesting point because with that digital transformation, if you go back 20 years ago, around 2000, there were a number of digital, whatever you want to call them, but digital wallets created. Mm -hmm. where, right. There were these really slick systems that were created um, that were a way for you to manage all of your financial resources electronically. And Citigroup, for example, had a thing called My City where you could go on, you put everything there, and it had not only did it have your bank accounts and your socks, but it had your airline miles. You could get it all in one place. Right. Well, the adoption of that has actually been pretty slow. The number of people who actually really use a digital wallet in that way, so they have mm -hmm. all of their financial results in one place, is uh, it's a lot less than you know I think everybody expected it to be. And there are places like Personal Capital is another company, for example, where you can create your own balance sheet and put all your assets in there. It's a very easy way to access it. But the setup time is material enough in getting it set up and, and, and done that people just don't do it. So the number of people that truly have a real digital wallet is not extensive. And none of them have worked well enough to sort of set up automatically. So as a consequence, what you have now is you have your credit card statements and you know you get them and right. maybe you're, you're online with them, but they're not all consolidated for you. And maybe you have some of your banking relationships. So even within banking, which is light years ahead and really does have the facilities, it's not there. So your relationship with your carrier, the, the typical person, if they want it, they can go online and they would typically be able to see things about their insurance policy 
But how often does anyone ever do that? <laughs> you just don't do it. So it's not very electronic. It's once a year, or if you're on a six-month policy, once every six months, you have to pay a premium. You look at the premium. If you think it's a little too much, you might shop it. And if you shop it, that's you're going to go to Google or Yahoo or something. You're going to do a yeah. search. Yeah. And when you do the search, that search is going to be picked up by a lead aggregator. And it's going to be someone like All Web Leads, as an example. And All Web Leads will, uh, when the, they'll buy those leads from the major search engines, from Google, for example, mm -hmm. they will then sell those leads to either insurance agents directly or to carriers or to someone else who will then try to sell that consumer. And so that's what, and if you're Geico, you try to drive people to you directly with natural search rather than going to, you know, just searching for insurance on the internet. Yeah. You want to use the Geico or whatever they're, the, uh, the, the gecko, I think they call the gecko or the caveman or whatever. And hopefully that resonates with someone and they go to you directly and you save the, the uh, fee that you would have to pay for the lead and you, your commission costs go way down, your acquisition costs go way down. So yeah. they're trying to do that and then they compete against the agent who tries to buy the leads and then tries to convince the customer that you know, they can provide a better service and all of that. So that's the nature of the way the market works today. Okay, so um, one, of the, one of the issues that um, has to be part of the conversation that I have with, with clients when I'm talking to them about their future is the length of their strategic horizon. So in other words, if they're, if they're a boomer, and their perpetuation is five years or less down the road, and they're, and so they're preparing for an acquisition. It would seem their their strategic horizons relatively short compared to, let's say, another client who might be thirty eight years old and and they see themselves being in this industry for the next twenty or thirty years. It would seem that they would have, um, uh, you know, this the length of that horizon. Um, might might provide a, sort of a, a different suggested strategy. Yes, yeah, and first of all, that also is a very interesting thing. And we spoke in your last podcast about this, about what's happened in the industry, because in the industry back you know, thirty years ago or so, everyone wanted to be a multi-line, meaning property, casualty, life, and health—the three main elements of insurance. And every carrier wanted to do that. Today, virtually every carrier has gone away. There, there is no one who has all three. And then recently, over the last month, you probably saw the announcement that AIG just announced that uh, they're selling their life operation. Yes. Life operation very, right. very, uh, it's a very successful life operation. They bought the American General operation back about 20-some years ago. And uh, they built it together. They bought Sun Life. They put it all together in, in one place. And that was a very successful part of their company, in addition to their foreign business that was a life business. And now they're putting it up for sale. And they're so uh, so explain that one, Dennis. So 30 years ago, yeah, everybody like the, the carriers wanted to like own the insurance world, right? Yep. But yep. but now they're yes, you're right. They've been spinning off major divisions. What's motivating that? <clears throat> well, it's one of the elements of it is that, and this started about. 20 or 25 years ago, quite a while ago, is the focus on what was called shareholder value. And when one looks at the share price of these companies, because most of them were public, 
when, and a lot of the mutuals converted to, particularly life mutuals, they converted to stock companies. And it, as that happened, the market initially used to give you a little higher multiple for being a multi-line, meaning you had all oh. three box of business. And the reason you got a higher multiple was that people thought that, okay, if you had all three lines, you know, one loss in one would be offset by gain in the other. It'd be more stable and that would be the uh, Okay. Better but diversification. Then, okay. Yeah, and that's right. But then in the 90s, that mindset shifted into model line and they gave a much higher valuation to somebody who was a pure health company that was just an HMO, let's say, or somebody that was just a pure uh, commercial insurance company. And so, so, so what did the, what did the marketplace learn to, to make that shift in its valuation? Well, yeah, it's, it's been my view for the whole period that that's actually a mistake on the part of the market, but you know, the market is the market and it knows what it's doing. <laughs> but I actually believe a company is way better off if they were a multi-line, I think they're a lot more stable and yes, they will have, they'll never, achieve a high as high as they might if they're a model line but it also eliminates the lows and on balance i think the economies of scale kick in and coast's law you know about economies of scale kicks in and i think they're actually better off as multi-lines but very few people agree with me on that and most companies have moved everybody now has moved away from being a multi-line and they're now all focused on one line or another. And part of the argument from that, that they get from agents is that, uh, and from the, uh, from their, uh, the, you know, the buy side analysts, for example, mm -hmm. is that, well, we don't believe you can manage those complex, complex businesses well by managing all three of them. Yeah. Now, when I was with CNA, as I mentioned for 27 years, we were a true multi-line. We had uh, all three businesses, they were all big and, I, in my opinion, we did a pretty good job of managing all three. And it wasn't that hard for us to do that. We had different teams, of course, and we saw lots of advantages of having them together and some cross-sell and getting uh, better products for our agents across all of them. So for a variety of reasons, I actually think it was a lot better, but that is not the view that anybody has today. And the management teams of these carriers have all moved toward focusing on a single line, ergo the, the uh, now recent sale of AIG's life company. I would have mm -hmm. not thought, because it, was, because it is a good life company, very strong, very successful, I would not have thought that AIG was going to sell off that business. So it was driven, I'm sure, by this focus on just getting down to a single line of business where they think they'll get a better valuation. Okay, so back, back to the agent. What do you, if, if we were going to give strategic advice, like this is a really important question. I, I think that, you know, one of the, uh, like my biggest enemy is complacency, yep. right? It, it, it's that, uh, you know, it's not just that we've done it this way all the time. It's just that for, for a lot of agents, they've never really had to make strategic decisions. They essentially sold insurance, and 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 didn't give and don't give a lot of forethought to where are we going to play and how are we going to win? And yeah. it would seem that in times of turbulence, those are the really important questions. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Now, the interesting thing that has occurred also in the agency market is that um, there's two sets of numbers that are important to think about. One is 
the profitability of the agency, and second is the value of the agency. So if you look at the profitability, and I'm going to be very general here, but I, but yeah. I think directionally this will be correct. So <laughs> if you go back 25 or 30 years ago, a well-run agency had their profit was going to be somewhere around 15 to 20% of their total revenue, meaning of their total commissions and other income. All right, I, I know where you're going with this because this is my favorite. This is my favorite dentist uh, maxim here. So, go ahead, well, let, lay the truth on us here. Well, so and that was a well-run agency would run fifteen uh -huh. to twenty percent. There were some that would run as low as ten, and a super agency might run twenty-five percent, and nobody right. ran higher than that. Yeah, yeah. Now, fast forward to today. Today, if you're running 20%, you've got a low margin. The average agency should be closer to 30, and there's some that get up into the 35 or 40% range. The margins have gone way, way up on their revenue. So they're a lot more profitable for every dollar of revenue they bring in. Now, that's obviously very good. Now, that has also meant that the value of the agencies has gone up dramatically relative to their revenue stream. Now, mm -hmm. if we go back again 30 years ago, it was sort of thought that an agency would sell for more or less one times commission, maybe one, uh, one times revenue, commission yeah. is revenue more or less. So it was one time, maybe one and a half times. And the range would be sometimes as low as 0.5 and sometimes as high as two, but the norm being one mm -hmm. to one and a half. And that was okay. pretty much the way it was in the 80s and 90s. And then as you got into the 90s, that started to shift largely because the profitability recovered. And it recovered for an interesting reason, because after some of the, the crisis that occurred in the 80s, mid 80s, premiums went up dramatically. And of course, when the premiums did go up, then uh, for the agency, the commission was a fixed percentage. So their profit went up as well mm -hmm. because they got much higher commissions and much higher premiums for doing more or less the same amount of work. So it became a more profitable business for them. That increased the value of the agencies. And so today, a well-run agency that's running a 30% EBITDA margin should be able to sell for at least two times and oftentimes three or four times commissions and you know, a, a revenue. They'll be able to sell for three or four times revenue. And it, it's increased the value for them. So they have an asset that's worth a lot more. Now, at the same time that happened, that also caused the shift away from what was all the independent agents and then the big alphabet houses. Because back in 30 years ago, you had the you had more or less 20 or so very large what were called alphabet houses like A and H, A and H, M and M, you know, which were the uh, which were the the companies that were the that wrote most of the public uh, public company insurance and you know the larger stuff. And they had smaller offices as well, smaller smaller businesses as well, but they wrote most of the big business. And then what happened is those 20 or so larger firms consolidated down into three or four, where you had you know essentially Marsh, Aon, Willis, Gallagher. That was kind of the biggest of the of yeah. that group of companies. Right. right. And then a new form emerged in the middle of it, and that new form were the consolidators that rolled up the agents. 
And what they did is they went out and started paying instead of paying one times commission, which they did initially or mm -hmm. one or two times. And if they bought it on an EBITDA basis, they would be paying initially five or six times EBITDA. Then it got up to the average deal being eight or nine times EBITDA. And now you'll see occasional deals that'll be like 10, 12, 15 times EBITDA. <laughs> so people pay a lot more. And it's driven by a number of things. One is the cost of financing that is a lot lower because interest rates are lower. So you can pay a little more because you can buy it at a little higher price and finance it and not have as, as high a cost. So it makes the economics more attractive. And so as you, uh, as you do that, it's changed the dynamic. So if you're an agent, what does all that say? Well, if you're an agent, you have to consider what your future is going to be. Are you going to remain independent or are you going to sell to one of the consolidators? And it was people like USI and ABI and uh, Cortes Seguros and Acrisure and all yeah. that. I mean, there's a number of these firms out there that are doing those roll-ups and they've been doing them very successfully. And you can actually join in. You'll typically do a deal where you'll get, you know, call it 50% cash, 50% contingent over five mm -hmm. years, you stay with it. You run the agency. If you continue to run it as well as you have in the past, you'll do very well on that and you'll make right. a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So, and then we'll provide for some continuity because continuity was always a problem in the agency world because it was called perpetuation. And did you have perpetuation of the agency if your children didn't want to come into it? Because back 30 or 40 years ago, the common model was somebody would start an agency, it would be successful, they'd have some producers, they'd bring their children in, the children raise kids, them. right? But now a lot of the children, they just don't even want to go into the business. And so now that has become a less common model. And so there are still a number like that because there's always every example of whatever you're talking about. But what has become more common is that as the person who was the agency principal grew and expanded, they knew that the people who were some of their key producers couldn't buy it for any price that made sense usually. And so they would end up selling to one of these entities that did the roll up and do very well to do that. And the producers would go along with it. So it's a very different model today where it's now a three-tier model instead of a two, where the two-tier model had 20 or so really large right. alphabet mm -hmm. and everybody else. And at one point there were 70,000 licenses. There's now 35 or 40,000 licensed casualty agents. And there's you know realistically more like 20,000 because a lot of them are just minor licenses don't mean much. So, and of those, they're probably still there, you know, there are four or 5,000 good size agencies out there that can either remain independent or continue to blend with one of these other larger um, companies that are doing the roll-ups. All right. So it's a completely different market and you have a three-tier market. You have the three or four large carriers with Marsh, Ann Willis, uh, you know, the, and Gallagher, and then you have this next tier of maybe 20 or so, including the ones I mentioned, mm -hmm. and then everybody else. So it's all a right. very good business today, but they're still all going after the same business. The fundamental commercial insurance business has not changed very much in the last 50 years. There are some new coverages, such as you know, some of the financial coverages that you had before. It used to be just sort of security, but then you got financial guarantees that developed. That's still a, that's a decent sized business. And then, you, of course, you have the cyber coverages. And yeah. now it changed with pandemic, but it's still basically the same business as it was at that time hasn't changed a lot. Same is true on personal insurance, even though there, you know, there's some additional things, but you still need your auto, your home, you need an umbrella, you might have some 
if you have um, special ownership in arts or something like that, you need that. But it's not a lot different than it was. Okay, so so I I one or two, um, one or two last questions, and 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 I'm circling back on something here. Um, that shift of um, oh, you know, uh, the 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 trend, the the force that initially allowed for uh, a, let's say, a 20% profit margin to a 30% profit margin. Yes. Um, what was caused by, um, obviously, larger economic forces that are outside of sort of, of everybody's normal control, right? It, it, yeah. it wasn't that all of a sudden we had a new generation of agents who were just incredibly smarter than their than their dads who ran the agency before, and so they boosted their their profitability by in this case by fifty percent. Uh, this really, I think, your argument is this really is the cause of larger conditions. Can you explain that? Yeah, sure. And I think first of all, uh, while the younger people that are emerging and moving into the industry, I would say the one characteristic that is different about them, I, I don't really think they're smarter necessarily, but they're, it attracted a little different type of a person. And in many instances, it attracted people who are maybe a little more analytical and a little, had different kind of training as opposed to agents. If you go back 50 years ago, it was more or less a relationship business. Mm -hmm of how did you meet people meet and greet and how did you do that well you're right right this, this well, was the way 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 pre-demic period where oh yes for sure and yeah the younger people then had first way more computer savvy and oftentimes when you see when i'll go and meet with some of my friends in the agency business some of the older principals you know have had trouble adapting to the new Indeed. electronic environment Whereas the younger people, it's second nature. They grew up on it. And so you, know, you, you have to do business that way these days. You can't really rely on the old business. Now, there's still some old business, but fundamentally yeah, shifted for, away from that. That's, that, it would seem, is an imperative. Just like we, you know, we demand the carriers to be you know, digitally savvy, today's consumer really demands the agency to be digitally competent. Right. Yeah, okay. they expect you to be able to do just basic things like using email and you know following up and being prompt in your response. And the world has gone as we've moved into this now work at home environment as well. It's moving to more of a twenty-four by seven environment where you're no longer in a nine to five job. You don't have to appear in your office from one time to another. You can kind of work when you want to work. Now, when you call people, obviously, you got to do it within some reasonable hours, but a lot of the work can be done at any time. So it's changed that and it's become so electronic and you have to be good at the electronics or you just can't get your work done. Not going to get the work done. Okay. And, right. and you're not going to satisfy today's consumer now. No. No. So, so the force that uh, shifted uh, real revenue dollars from the carrier part of the equation to the agency part of the equation had to do with, as, as I recall in previous conversations, uh, uh, access to, to capital uh, became cheaper. Yes. And access to information became less, um, well, became easier. It was no, no yeah, longer. Yeah, that, that, I think you got it exactly right. That 
The big shift was the key core competency 50 years ago was access to capital. Only the big carriers could get it. It was hard to get capital, hard to get loans. Financing wasn't as readily available. And second was access to information. And again, only the big carriers knew the information about things such as the level of risk in one for an 18 year old driver versus a 50 year old driver, you know, married or not married, you know, those characteristics were known by the carriers. So since they controlled the two key core competencies, they got the bulk of the profit. These days, information, anybody can buy that information in many different ways and the capital is easy to get. So the key core competency now is control of the customer. And the carriers know that, that's why the carriers have lost profitability as that it had to pay more in the way of marketing costs to be able to capture those customers. And that's, I believe, a permanent shift. It's not going back the other way. Okay, so so uh, the agency force is the beneficiary of this. So no Dennis, if you were going to jump on my soapbox for a minute and deliver a message to the leaders, the uh, the principals, the owners of the of the independent agencies in 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 this country, or our listeners, mostly U.S. and Canada. Um, what advice would you give them? What strategically? What what do you want to tell them they need to pay attention to and that they need to do? Uh, I, I basically give them two pieces of advice: one strategic and one operational. The Operational piece of advice would be, if you have not already done it, to uh, to basically stratify and specialize. By that, I mean that the only way that you can be successful in marketing these days is to pick target markets that you focus on and you concentrate them, uh, concentrate on those, and you develop programs. Now, many agents have done that for a long period of time, but you've got to get to be a specialist. If you say, I'm here, I'll help you with your workers comp, regardless of what you are, that doesn't work. So you've mm -hmm. got to get very stratified and you've got to build a team around that stratification as to what your skills are, what you can do better than your competition. And you do it by bringing a lot deeper knowledge in specific areas to your customer set. So it's stratifying and specializing and doing it through your agency management. The second thing I would give would be a piece of strategic advice, which it's the thing that in my experience that agents tend not to do is they're making money, everything is going along right, and they don't think about the future. And instead, they need to sit back and say, all right, what are we attempting to do here? Do we want this agency to exist 10 years from now and to grow? And are we bringing family in? Are we going to transfer it to other producers that are in the agency? So what's our long-term strategy? And if you don't there's an old saying which says if you don't know where you're going any road will get you there and i think that's that's really true so you should be thinking about what's your objective and if you don't put a stake in the ground and say my objective is either to i want to run this forever or i want to do it for a specific period of time and sell if you don't build around that strategic plan then you just kind of go on and you get your cork in the stream and you just kind of get bounced along so my my two okay. piece of advice in summary would be operationally stratify and specialize it's critical today and mm -hmm. then strategic point of view plan what your future is going to be and it sounds like let, let me see if i'm in alignment with your earlier thinking 
that uh, when the agent begins to like get into that second question, you know, what, what's our future going to look like? How are we going to build it? They, they do need to be aware of uh, the real trends and forces that are happening in the real world. And I think you would probably be among those, as, as have been many of my, my podcast guests, who would be inclined to say, it's smarter to lean up market than down market. And uh, as an agent, I would say yes. As an agent, as, yes. Yeah, as an agent, I would say, now as a carrier, that may not be the case. But as an agent, I'd say leaning up market because you can bring services in that way. The other element of it, though, and again, it's a little different personal commercial and also depends whether you've got a health book and a life book. Because they're, mm -hmm. I think that the most successful agencies are agents who can bring together someone who can bring those additional services and try to capture a larger percentage of the insurance dollar that is being paid by your consumer because it means that the consumer then trusts you you become the trusted advisor you're less likely to lose that client right, right. providing them a full range of services so i personally if i were running an agency and trying to decide what to do i'd want to have that broad range i'd want a life operation i'd, I'd Probably, I may or may not want a health operation, depending on how it's structured. But I, if you can build it big enough, then you definitely want a health operation. And the health operation today, because of MedSup and what's happening, is a little different than it always used to be. But I, I'd want that. And then in the personal lines and commercial lines market, I would want to go up market for sure in personal lines. Selling at the lowest level is, you just cannot make money. You can't run a business at that. It's, it's a commodity business. The turnover is too high. Uh -huh. You can't do it. And in the commercial, you're selling small commercial can be very effective if you develop a program. So you go after hardware stores or farms or multifamily, whatever it might be, restaurants. And if you find the right carriers that support that, you can do very well with that. Very good. Well, Dennis, um, I'm not sure you want inbound requests or calls, but if somebody wants to learn more about what you have to say. Is there any way that people can make contact uh, sh sh shy of interrupting your day? Sure, I could. Uh, I'm available on email. Yeah, my email address is my name. It's Dennis at Chukasian.com. And if you, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm happy to communicate with people. Very good. Well, I appreciate it. Well, Dennis, as always, this was a, uh, uh, well, I got pages of notes. <laughs> And this was an educational, an, another educational hour with Dennis. Uh, and uh, I, I really, really appreciate your time. So thank you very, very much for spending time with us. Well, great, Michael. Thank you. It was great talking to you and to your audience. You bet. Thank you for listening to the Connected Insurance Podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share it with your peers and colleagues. Explore the Connected Insurance family of resources for insurance agents and brokers by visiting agencyrevolution.com and clicking media. Subscribe and get updates delivered right to your inbox. New episodes every Wednesday.